Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. I'd like to welcome all of you to our Father's Day extravaganza. I think we have food. Uh, do we have cars? Are we showing cars? We're showing cars at the end. Uh, you guys having a good time so far? So glad you made it. Because it's Father's Day, I want you to repeat after me on the count of three. One, two, three. Go Cowboys. Hey, I don't care. You guys are acting like kids, okay? Come on. I'm going to give you a second chance. One, two, three. That's all I wanted. That's my Father's Day wish. Thank you for that. So here's the thing. What do we do with this story of Jacob wrestling with God? Um, for me, uh, for a long time, it was an ontological mystery. How does God rip open space, enter our plane, and wrestle with us, right? And I know maybe some of you here today, and I'm not going to give an apologetic. It's not my objective here this morning. But um, many of you have doubts about this story, the historical value of this story, because, you know, for maybe some of you, but for many people out there in the world, Jacob wrestling with God is rejected a priori because we know those things don't happen, right? We're modern people. And because this Jacob wrestling with God's story doesn't conform to our paradigms of reality, we reject it. For, for many people out there in the world, no one in here, but maybe out in the world, maybe at different churches, reality is closed. Uh, one scholar calls uh, people like this flat earthers. Everyone say flat earthers. Flat earthers is a belief that there are no spiritual dimensions to reality. No God, no spiritual beings. Reality is closed off to all of that stuff. Heaven and earth do not intersect with each other. Heaven does not have its own kind of space, own kind of time, own kind of matter, and is some way, if there is a heaven, disembodied. This is kind of, we talked about this often, a split-level way of seeing the world. However, here's the thing. I'm not going to offer an apologetic but there are too many experiences that I have had that I can't reduce them down to the firing of my brain synapses. Can I get an amen? I know many of you have had way too many experiences with God. Billions of people have had way too many experiences of God uh, wherein it's impossible to reduce it to just the brain chemistry, you making up something. Shakespeare even said there are way more things in this universe than we can possibly imagine. I've been reading one historian. Uh, he used to be an atheist. He's written much about Christianity. He's now thinking. He's in the process of thinking uh, about becoming a Christian. So in this process of converting to Christianity, he calls this story terrifying. Everyone say terrifying. It's terrifying because it implies that the universe is not of our own making. It's terrifying because God wrestles with man means that we are held accountable, that God is in charge, not us. So what do we make of this story? First, uh, what we do know is that there's a looming crisis. Esau is approaching Jacob's camp with 400 men. And we know Esau is a psychopath, 
In fact, the Genesis uh, profile or character profile of Esau is um, unforgiving. We find in Genesis chapter 27, after Esau lost his father's blessing because of Jacob's deceit, we read that two things. He hated his twin brother, and then he plotted to kill him. Good thing or bad thing? Bad thing. And five of you said bad thing? Um, I have three sets of twins, so you'll need to pray for me, right? It's funny how um, this story is so confusing on so many different levels. Uh, Esau's arrival, his impending arrival, drives Jacob into prayer. We find this in chapter 32, 9 through 12. I wish I could like diagnose this prayer or deconstruct it for us. It's, it's a powerful prayer that I've been praying this week. But what we find is that after Jacob prays this prayer, Jacob then sends Esau this extravagant retinue of gifts ahead of him and his family, right? He wants to pacify his psychopathic brother who probably graduated from the University of Idaho. <laughs> there you are, there you are. So what does Jacob do? Jacob cash apps Esau $20,000 and says, please don't kill me, right? That was a bad dad joke, but I, I can say whatever I want to say because it's Father's Day. So as the gifts are passing Jacob by, as we read in the story, he decides to stay in camp by himself. Number one rule when you're camping, don't stay alone by yourself in camp. And then he sees the silhouette of a man across the river. And so what does he do? He wrestles them. Why not wrestle a feral man in the wilderness by yourself? I mean, the logic is sound, guys. So sound. As many of you know, I have a nature anxiety disorder. And there are just too many things in nature that can kill you, especially wild, feral people who live off the land for 20 years. So what's really going on in the story before I attempt to answer that question. What's interesting, and I, I find interesting, is that translators title this little narrative piece, Jacob Wrestling with God. Uh, I think it's the, the NET, the ESV, uh, the NIV, uh, the New King James Version. They title this piece, Jacob Wrestling with God. However, I like the um, NAS, NAS translation, and there's a few other translators that are a little more bold and honest, and they simply translate it as Jacob Wrestled. I think they're throwing up their hands and saying, uh, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> so what's going on in this story? Number one, chapter 32, which we just, Lindsay read so eloquently for us, is framed around Jacob's encounter with angels. Encountering angels in uh, Genesis is an intertextual clue that is saying Jacob is returning back to the promised land. How do we know that? Well, we know that angels or cherubim guard the garden. In the ancient Near East, uh, angels actually guard sacred space. So we have Jacob on a journey, and he's now entering into sacred space. That's one. Two, what we find is that the name Jacob, the word wrestle, the creek called Jabbok. Everyone say Jabbok. They all sound the same in Hebrew. This triumvirate of words, 
wrestle, struggle, right? Jacob, Jabbok, all highlight the one big theme of Jacob's story. It's all about Jacob's struggle for his father's blessing. There's two things here. Please hear me today. Jacob's struggle for his father's blessing is driving the entire narrative towards this encounter with God. What we do know is that, one, Jacob had a sibling rivalry with his, bro, with his bro Esau, right? It wasn't just competitive. What was the rivalry over? It was over blessing and birthright. Indirectly, that is connected to who? The father. Two, we know that Jacob, in Genesis 27, deceived his father Isaac for his blessing. Number three, we know at the end, of, I think, of Genesis 27, that Isaac was a good man, but he was a really bad father. And as a father, the text tells us that he preferred Esau over Jacob. You can't tell me that Jacob did not feel that in his bones every single day. Esau comes into the tent. Isaac's eyes light up. Isaac comes in, or excuse me, then Jacob comes into the tent. And Isaac, I'm getting all confused, but Isaac then looks at him and says, Hey, right? Jacob understood that his father preferred Esau over him. Here's the here's number one lesson on how not to create a dysfunctional family. Don't prefer one child over another. Right? And then number four, Jacob also cheats his father-in-law out of blessing. It's fascinating to me. And I know I'm going to make a controversial point here, but this is when I'm going to say, I don't know why I said it like that, but this is what I'm going to say, that Jacob is an archetype of the modern Western world. Jacob is a wanderer who is fatherless. In fact, fatherlessness is this imperceptible, invisible reality which permeates our culture. And at the bottom of Jacob's misshapen life, all of his choices, his deception, how he uses all the people is essentially his struggle over not being the blessed son. I'm making another controversial point. We live in a culture driven mad over our appetite for fame and doing big things, right? We have a big appetite for success and achievement, and there's nothing wrong with success or achievement or fame or whatever or doing big things. But our obsession or being driven mad over it, I think, is connected to our collective grief of not being blessed by our Father. We're not blessed as sons and daughters by our Father, and we are driven mad. We're driven mad obsessed with fame and doing something big, attempting to justify our existence. But let me say this really quick. This is not to say that God will not hold Jacob accountable. God certainly does. He gently, everyone say gently. He gently dislocates his hip as they wrestled. Has anyone ever dislocated your arm or something? It is horrifying. It actually didn't dislocate. I thought I dislocated my arm, my shoulder in high school. I sprained it, and I wanted to vomit. It's the worst. It's the worst pain you could ever experience. Why would God do that? Well, could we call it judgment? Could we call it grace? I think there's 
an element of judgment and grace as God dislocates the father of creation, dislocates Jacob's uh, hip. I think it's funny how um, many of us give lip service to, man, I'm not perfect, but then we're shocked if we should be wrong. Every one of you, you are a hypocrite. I'm not perfect. I, if I ever see, if I see one more bumper sticker say, I'm not perfect, I'm human, I'm like, huh? That doesn't make sense to me. Of course no one is perfect. And yet we act as if we're perfect because we refuse correction of any sort. No one bats a thousand. In fact, Ted Williams, if you love baseball, the greatest hitter of all time, batted 406 in 1941. If you're a mathematician, what is that? That's 40%. The greatest hitter of all time, arguably the greatest athlete of all time, hit the ball only 40% of the time. 60% of the time, he failed. And you want to tell me that your lowercase t truth can't be corrected? I'm getting you riled up. I'm getting you riled up. That's not my, that's not my goal. Experience is experience. Here, I'm not, I'm not trying to devalue experience. Man, we're here for you. God loves you, right? But God also will come and bring discipline. There's this weird, subtle hubris in culture, a cultural narcissism that will not allow any sort of correction. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 tells us, tells us this. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're without discipline, then you're an illegitimate child. That's a scary thing. If you're living a life without any sort of correction or any sort of adjustments from, from the Holy Spirit, I wonder if you are walking with the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing, if, I did not dis if my wife and I did not discipline our kids on a daily basis, people in our backyard squirrels would literally die. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Pets' heads would fall off. <laughs> Lord have mercy. But what's interesting, my kids, because they know my wife and I love them, expect discipline. And they get a lot of it. But they expect it because they know it's rooted in love. I've said this recently, but I think a number, growing, growing number of experts suggest that our hunger for the Father's blessing is one of the deepest hungers in the whole world. You can't tell me. You can't. You can't. I'm sorry. You can't tell me that fatherlessness is not somewhat of a contributing factor in our cultural malaise and meltdown. You can't tell me. I'm more convinced that we're driven into ourselves and we're coming up with bizarre theories about what it means to be human because we're driven mad over not being blessed. However, however, with that being said, I, I, I like some trends I'm seeing on TV. This is a show that my wife and I watch. This is us. If, if you think that's a bad show, we have friends that watched it and they told us about this show. So whatever floats your boat. I can't win with anybody, you know? So I just confused all of you. Wait, was it his friends or was it him? But in this show, 
It portrays fathers, and I love it, not as bumbling idiots, nor do they idealize them, but they honor them. And the biggest thing or the biggest takeaway when I love about this show is that it highlights how essential fatherhood is. Russell Moore, I love this, I've read this so many times, shares a moving story about adopting two sons. And in it, he highlights the absolute need for a father. This is what he writes. The creepiest sound that I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two, two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times uh, stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and the punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listen carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as, as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergey, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand. About saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. Kel and I have read those same books to our children. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered in silence. On the last day of the trip, Marie and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallways. Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew maybe for the first time that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck maybe for the first time by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. Ones I memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. Little Maxim's scream changed everything. More, I think, than did the judge verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard. That he went from being an orphan to being a son. It's also the moment I knew I became a father. In fact, if not in law, we both recognized that something was wrong because suddenly life as it had been seemed terribly disordered. Up to that time, I had read the Abba cry passages in Romans and Galatians the same way I heard them preach as a gurgle of familiarity, the spiritual equivalent of an infant cooing papa or daddy. Relational intimacy is purely present in the text, hence Paul's choice of such a personal word as Abba, but this definitely isn't sentimental. After all, Scripture tells us that Jesus' spirit lets our hearts scream, Abba, Father. Jesus screams, Abba, Father, as he cries with loud cries and tears for deliverance at the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Similarly, the doctrine of adoption shows us that we groan with creation itself as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. It is the scream, in the words of Russell Moore, of the crucified. You can't tell me that fatherlessness or fatherhood is not essential. In fact, in one study, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but it stated that most of the prominent 20th century atheists had all one thing in common, and it's that they hated their fathers. They hated their fathers, and it drove them into atheism. One author defines fatherhood as an obligation that is more than your money, it's more than your body, it's more than your time. It's an invisible presence like the commitment of gravity to the stars. So what happens when the father is absent or when the father does not bless his family? Well, it's like when gravity fails and the stars slip from the sky. It's an apocalyptic nightmare. And then all the children become Green Bay Packer fans. (laughs) I had to lighten the mood. Unfortunately, fatherhood, and we know this in our age, isn't seen as it should be, right? For example, one uh, writer describes at a cocktail party an encounter with a famous actor or uh, author. We don't know who he is. The famous author approached this young aspiring writer and said, hey, if you want to make it big in life, don't have kids. He goes on to say, children are notorious thieves of time which he's right. (laughs) Love you guys. Especially if you have seven of them and you feel like your mind is slipping away from you every single day. He goes on and says, you need to travel. This is his big advice. You You gotta travel. You have to have new experiences. For every child, you lose one book. The good news is that the author eventually wrote 14 books while having four kids. Can I get an amen? So what happens when the father is absent, when the father does not bless his family? Well, again, as I mentioned, the star slipped from the sky. So why are fathers so important? Well, because you can't get God. Everyone say, get God. You can't get God if you don't see God as father. Why is fatherhood so important? Because you cannot get him, the big guy, if you don't see God as father. He is the father of all creation who blesses the world. Hosea chapter 11, I'm gonna give you just a series of passages to show you the character of God the Father. Hosea 11, one through nine, you get a sense as you read this that God will move heaven and earth to care for his family. Verse one, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Isn't this just parenting 101? Like we do everything for you and you still disobey and give me attitude, right? Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They should not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they refused to return to me. 
The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them, not because I want it, but because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Verse 8 then switches. God then, it's almost like he pauses. You got to feel the mood of this. God, his father, says, no, 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 no. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adam? How can I treat you like such and such? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the only one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It's like God will tear space apart to take care of his kids. Psalm 68, David tells us five and six, says, God is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. This is the God we serve. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The father of creation takes care of the vulnerable. Hosea chapter 14, verse three. I hope you like these passages. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands because in you, in you, because you are the father of all creation, the orphan finds mercy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 18 through 19. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And because of that, love the sojourner. Therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Matthew chapter 6 Verse 11, it's the Lord's prayer. And Jesus begins by saying, my feelings. No, he doesn't. That was a trick. He says, my father or our father who is in heaven. And because he's our father in heaven, verse 11 says, he gives us, he gives us this day our daily bread. Our father provides for us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, I love this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You go to the Johannine Discourse. Jesus and his intimate relationship with the Father is fascinating. And then when Jesus comes back from the dead, he has an encounter with Mary, uh, Mary in John chapter 20, verse 17. And this is what he says to Mary. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and now your Father, to my God and now your God. Jesus, in his death, broke the curse of sin and shame. And then he exhausted, we've been saying this for a couple weeks, the, the wickedness of the cosmic powers into himself. And then he came back from the dead. Why? Because he wants to be your father. Man, I was hoping to get a better amen from this section. So this is a, I'm going to say it over here. So, (laughs) Jesus came back from the dead. Not just so he can prove that man, God is arbitrarily powerful. No, he came back from the dead based on John chapter 20 because he wants to be your dad. He wants to provide for you. He wants to care for you. 
This is why when we come full, full circle back to the story of Jacob, God, the father of all creation, moves heaven and earth, tears space apart, just rips it up so he can wrestle with his dysfunctional son. I love that. You can't tell me that your dysfunction is too much for God to handle or too much for God to love. As we close, I find ultimately that Jacob and his struggle for his father's blessing is seen for what it really is in this wrestling passage. Jacob's struggle is with God and with blessing. If you look at the sequence of things or the logic of, of the story of Jacob's wrestling, you see several things. You see the God, the father of all creation, who dislocates his hip gently, right? He then renames him from Jacob, heel grabber, people user, and then changes his name to Israel, which means prince, and then he blesses him. And after that, ex post facto, Jacob then realizes that he saw the face of God. And then check out what happens in Genesis 33, 9 through 11. He then has an encounter with Esau, his psychopathic brother, who he doesn't know if he's going to kill him. And we realize he doesn't. And verse 9, it says, but Esau said, I have enough. You've given me too much, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like, which is like seeing the face of God. And you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough, thus he urged him and he took it. So Jacob sees the face of God. And when he sees the face of God, he sees the face of God in everyone else. Or in other words, when you see the face of God, which is shaped by generosity, you will see the image of God in everyone else. And then from here on out, for the rest of Jacob's life, what does Jacob do? He doesn't steal. He doesn't use people. He only blesses. He only blesses. He blesses Pharaoh. He blesses his children. He even blesses his enemies. So as fathers, as we close... We are called to bless like God the Father who blesses. I remember my, my father telling me that uh, marriage showed him, this is a long time ago, that marriage showed him how self-centered he was. And then it was when he had me, and if I, don't, I, I don't know if I, I should have been offended or not, but he said this specifically, but then when I had you, I had to learn to give my entire life away. <laughs> I've heard rumors that I was the worst child in the last 40 years in, in American history. <laughs> Before fatherhood, the struggle is, is usually getting our lives together. It's like identity, right? It's trying to, trying to figure things out, trying to understand ourselves. But then when you become a father, the struggle is learning to give your entire life away. Before fatherhood, it's getting your life together but when fatherhood comes, and of course these can overlap, but when fatherhood comes, you enter into the struggle of giving your life away, which is at the very heart of blessing. The passage that, we've, that, that I just read in, in Genesis chapter 33, what does Jacob do? Jacob gives his resources, gives his attention, gives his forgiveness, gives his love. 
to his psychopathic twin brother. What is he doing? He's giving his life away. And by giving his life away, what is he doing? He's blessing Esau. So how do you, how do you, as I close, how do you give your life away as a father? I, I don't think it's just one thing. I think there are a million little things that you do that show um, the struggle of giving your life away. Like I remember my dad teaching me how to read my Bible. I remember I was like 12 and I was going through some stuff. I was a weird kid. (laughs) I just felt so much stuff. And as part of the gift mix that God has given me, and I remember my dad patiently sitting me down and teaching me how to read Psalms, teaching me how to read Proverbs. I remember my dad would say, okay, what does this passage mean? He would say, check the feel, the mood of this passage. And now my wife and I, we go upstairs with our kids now, and I'm doing the same thing with my children. It's all because of what my dad taught me, how to read my Bible. I remember my dad taking me on a ministry trip and he didn't have to, it was a big ministry trip. Again, I was kind of a strange kid. I mean, I was a lot to handle, but he took me anyways to Bend, Oregon. And uh, we went to a hotel, which was the biggest event of my life at that time. And he left me by myself in the hotel and I'm like, yes, this is gonna be amazing. So I turned on the TV and guess what? There was WWF, Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior. And Ultimate Warrior beat Hulk Hogan, I started crying. My dad came back, consoled me. And then the next day, we spent time together just looking at different sites around Bend, Oregon. He was blessed. What, what was my dad doing? He was, he was blessing me. I remember the time when uh, my dad had to fight with elders, and these elders are no longer a part of our church. But he had to fight with elders because he was committed, committed to being there for my games on Saturday. The elders thought he need, that he needed to study on Saturday and be really prepared and bring his best energy on Sunday. And my father said, no, I will not put ministry before my family. I remember my dad. Again, he was, he was Ken Wilde. He was leading a growing church in this city. He was um, a recognized figure, and he would soon become a national figure as he planted the national prayer center, started the National Prayer Center, but during that time, he even had time to coach me basketball. He taught me the mechanics of shooting a basketball, taught me beef principle and how to put my wrist in the basket, and I do the same thing with my boys, and they don't listen to me. I wish they would listen to me, but I love you, Dad. I remember the time when (laughs) I was playing baseball, and I was playing Little League, and I don't know how this happened, but the umpire left the game. And so we needed an umpire, so they asked my dad to umpire. So I think we were in the seventh inning, and I think we only go seven innings. The count was 3-2, so three balls, two strikes. I'm up at the plate. There's two outs. I can't hit a baseball to, to save my life. And so I'm like, oh, God, let this be a ball. Pitcher throws it. It's a strike. And my dad goes, ball. (laughs) 
And I'm like, are you sure, Dad? People in the stands were like, what? I knew it was a strike. They knew it was a strike. But my dad said, he, man, this kid needs a win. Ball! And guess what? We end up winning that game. Thank you, Dad, for that. I remember my dad teaching me how to live by faith. I remember back then, Ozzy Osbourne was a big thing. We were told that he ate bat's heads, right? If you grew up in the 80s, you were like, ah. It was Sandy Patty, right? She was great. And Ozzy Osbourne, he was incarnation of, of Satan himself. So my dad took me aside. I think we were at Spokane, and he said, you know what, Chris? Let's just believe God in the next two hours will cancel this concert. Whether, whether you like him, Ozzy Osbourne or not, that's, that's not the issue. I think we all can agree his influence probably isn't the best. So we just felt like, okay, God, cancel this concert. And in addition, save people. And so we prayed. I remember praying with my father, and he had big faith. And lo and behold, within two hours, we were told that that concert was canceled. I remember looking at my dad. I'm like, Dad, you are amazing. How did you do that? He taught me how to believe in God. You see all these little things, all these little tiny things that my dad did, essentially, were giving his life away for me. And in doing so, he was, he was blessing me. My dad was not just picturing what it means to be a really good father. He was actually, actually picturing who God the Father really is. You see, as fathers, our goal is not to be a better dad. Our goal is not to win. Our goal is not to like, okay, just survive. Our goal is to picture to our families who the Father in heaven is. That's what we're called to do. And as we picture who the Father in heaven is, we bless our families. Finally, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but blessing comes from a Latin compound word, which means to speak well of. I think we can give our lives away in, in so many different ways, one. But two, one thing I think as fathers we can do better at, I know I can do better at, is speak well of our children. Not only speak well of our children, but I think we can do better at speaking their future over them. This is what I love about my parents. Both my mom and dad did this, but I remember my dad would, would set me aside and we would have conversations about the future and he would just let me dream big things. And I remember he would say, dad, or he would say Chris, you, you can do this. I remember as, as a 14-year-old kid, as a freshman, they put me on varsity and I was playing basketball my sophomore year, I started. I was 5'6". Our starting lineup was 6'6", 6'7", 6'6", 6'4", and then me, tiny little 5'7", redheaded kid who could fly, by the way. <laughs> Run circles around you. But, but I remember I, I didn't have belief in myself. I'm like, Dad, I don't know if I can do that. I just remember my dad sitting me down saying, Chris, I know it feels strange when you're out there, but you can do it. And I, ca I can't tell you how many times being out on the court and hearing my father's voice when I was like scared out of my mind, 
dribbling the ball through my legs, like, how am I gonna get this play going? And I remember thinking, my father saying, Chris, you can do it. I believe in you. See, as fathers, we are called to speak well of our kids and to speak the future over them. We find the end of Jacob's life after he sees the face of God. Before he dies, he takes his sons aside. He speaks encouraging words over them. And then what does he do? He speaks the future over their lives. As fathers, we are called to give our lives away and we're called to speak big things over our families. And as we do that, guess what? We bless them. And as we bless them, and there's no perfect, let me say this, there is no such thing as a perfect father. Can I get an amen? We all make mistakes, right? We all, we all mess up. But even, even when we make mistakes, our goal by the power of the Holy Spirit, our goal is to picture the Father in heaven by blessing our children, loving them, and giving our lives away. And everyone said, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. Lord, I just pray for those right now that have struggled with their Father's blessing. They recognize that the drive inside of them, be it a good drive, has been misshapen by their drivenness over not being blessed. And those of well, maybe sons and daughters in this room that have really struggled with their Father's blessing, I just ask right now, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would speak your blessing over them. Let them hear your love. Let them hear your voice. Jesus, I thank you that you and the Father worked together to rescue creation. That Jesus, you were wounded for our transgressions. You were wounded for our woundedness. And I just ask today on this Father's Day that you would bring healing to your sons and daughters who have not been blessed. And I pray right now that they would know by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are blessing them today in Jesus' name. I pray for all our wonderful fathers here this morning. I thank you that, man, daily it's a grind and they give their lives away. Maybe some fathers are, are struggling, maybe exhausted, maybe frustrated, maybe a lot of complicated things in life. I speak your blessing over them. I speak fresh strength into their bodies and into their minds. I thank you the peace of God that transcends all understanding would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you that their thinking would be shaped by the fatherhood of God. Lord, I thank you that you would uh, reinvigorate their mind and their heart for their family. And Lord, I thank you that you're raising up fathers from this house, and not just this house, but churches from around this city and around our nation. Fathers who will bless their families, and fathers who will bless their neighborhood, and fathers who will bless their cities, and fathers who will bless the world. And Lord, we want to be fathers today that bless our families, 
that bless strangers, that bless orphans, that are merciful to those who have no fathers. Bless those who are vulnerable. Bless those who are least in, in the eyes of our world. That we would be blessing only people. And that we would bless the world as the world is consumed by cursing and contempt in Jesus' name. So Father, I thank you that you would take our daily giving our lives away and loving our kids and, and doing the things that we do and you would use it as a picture of who you are and that it would release blessing into the lives of our families in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Can you give God a hand this morning? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.